Welcome to the Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic. For those of you listening for the first time, this is a show that tactically and technically discusses a different footballing theme, topic or protagonist each week. I'm Ali Maxwell, Michael Cox of The Athletic and of Zonal Marking joins me. Uh, Michael, we won't always align ourselves with topical events. Uh, In fact, some of the most mouth-watering episodes on the agenda will take us across the seas, across time frames as well. But we felt quite strongly that this was a topic that we should cover and we should cover it well. Yeah, two weeks out of two, there's been a managerial change. So having discussed Jose Mourinho last week, we're going to have a look at uh, Freddie Jungberg this week. Because he's uh, an interesting character and someone who I wouldn't really have considered as a a future Arsenal manager, even on a caretaker basis. And when we discussed doing this and doing it properly, there was only one extra guest we could get on. Frida Fagerlund of Aftonbladet, the only Swedish journalist, Frida, covering the Premier League from England. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you both here because I want to know about Freddie Jönberg, the player, but also his transition into coaching, what information you can give me about what we might expect from him as a manager, even just on an interim basis. But we have to start with, I mean, some linguistic housekeeping because I'm told, Frida, that Swedish people, they're not having him being called Freddy. Um, well, first of all, I don't think we are that passionate about not calling him Freddy. That's just me taking a stand against the English way of doing things. Um, but no, we don't use the nickname Freddy for someone named Frederick in general. Um, as a matter of fact, many Swedes call him Jungan instead. Um, so that that brings me to his surname, which many people also pronounce wrongly. It's actually Jungberg. Jungberg. I mean, given that I was struggling with Jose Mourinho's name last week and got a fair bit of stick for that, I might just stick to Freddy, if that's all right with you. Uh, let's get into the important stuff. He, he started his playing career, Frida, with Hamstadt in Sweden. And three or four seasons later, he moved to Arsenal. But in his time as a young player within the Swedish game, how quickly was he flagged up as a potential star? Um, I think that was definitely when he went to to Arsenal. Um, And he is, of course, considered as one of the greatest of all time. Um, He was named Player of the Year twice before Zlatan basically subscribed to that title for many years to come. Um, And he did brilliantly in a couple of tournaments like the Euros 2004 and the World Cup 2006 before quitting after the Euros 2008. but since he never really returned to Sweden, I guess he has become a bit of a mystery to us in general. Um, he's a very private person who doesn't fancy speaking to the media on a daily note. So the last couple of years of his career is pretty blurry, <laughs> I'd say. But I think it is to everyone. Um, and then suddenly he reappeared as a pundit on Swedish telly for a while before disappearing to Arsenal again. Um, so to summarise it, he is one of... Sweden's greatest of all time but he could definitely have been even bigger had he just shown some interest in being in the public eye. I think there's quite a lot about his character and his personality that even those who followed football very closely when he was starring for Arsenal Michael might not know about might not be very well known about him. Uh, He was defined by his time with Arsenal. Uh, It's 15 years 
since that invincible campaign. How is his time in English football remembered? How do you remember him? I mean, remember him primarily as a goal scorer. He was a really funny player, Jungberg. I was trying to think of an equivalent either from the time on now, and I can't really think of anyone else. He was an attacking midfielder, no question. Kind of arrived here as a number 10. Wenger converted him to more of a wide midfielder, which I think he wasn't that keen on at the start. But it kind of makes sense when you think about how he played. He was a wide midfielder who didn't really go down the line much. I don't think he was particularly tricky. Uh, I don't think of him as really playing many killer passes, but what he was great at was just getting on the end of through balls, often from Burkamp or, or Omri, and had a great knack at uh, scoring goals in big games as well. But I can't really think of a, a player to compare him to if there's anyone listening who doesn't remember. I mean, there's some was of he, the... Was he slightly unusual at that time? We're very used to wide forwards now, as opposed to the old-fashioned winger, often carrying the goal-scoring burden of, of their team at all levels of the modern game. Was that quite unusual at that stage? Yeah, I guess so. That was the time when, you know, we spoke about that Arsenal was a 4-4-2. I think these days we call it 4-2-3-1 with the, the wide players playing higher up. But I guess maybe there was a kind of, obviously he doesn't really play from a wide position, but something of the Deli Alley in the way that he always pops up in, you know, in behind the defence, scoring almost goal poaching goals. Um, but yeah, it was quite an unusual player and someone who kind of, flitted and out of games but often provided a decisive moment. How good are we talking in terms of a goal scorer for this Arsenal side? Henri took the goal scoring headlines. Was Jungberg the, the secondary goal scorer would you say? Their second attacking threat? I mean I guess at the time Arsenal were interesting because they shared the goals around quite quite evenly. Pirro's of course from the other flank got a lot but uh, in that 2001-2 campaign when I think it was probably his best for Arsenal I think particularly after Pires, who actually was Arsenal's best player that season, but Pires was out injured for the last couple of months. And then Jungberg really came onto his own. Um, and I think he scored 12 and 26 that season. So that shows how regularly he was he was scoring goals for, you know, at a time when we didn't really associate that kind of numbers really with wide midfielders. Frida, you touched on his time in Swedish yellow, international football, 75 caps, four major tournaments with Sweden. Michael's talked about how when he left Sweden, he was considered a more central attacking midfield player. What was his role for the national side? How did that develop over his time from making his debut as a younger player to being one of their key personnel throughout a a pretty successful time? Yeah, I'd say his role changed throughout the years, uh, a lot actually. Um, there was a lot of talk back in 2003 when he was scoring a bunch of goals for, for Arsenal, but at the same time he had a four-year-long dry spell on the national team. Um, I think he ended it against San Marino or something like that. Um, and during the World Cup 2006, he was used more as a playmaker, a position he seemed to enjoy quite a lot. Um, and that tournament, he actually scored what was back then probably the most important goal since Kenneth Anderson's goal against Romania in 1994. It came against Paraguay in the, in the group stage in the 89th minute, I think it was. Um, and rarely enough, he scored with his head, which didn't happen very often. Um, so yeah, uh, the brightest moment during his time on the national team and also uh, in Swedish footballing history at the time. How much crossover was there with him, Henrik Larsson and Zlatan Ibrahimovic in the Swedish national team? 
It was never a secret that Jungberg didn't get along very well with Slatan Ibrahimovic. <laughs> right. Um, and a national coach back then, Lars Lagerbeck, who is currently the coach of the Norwegian uh, national team, he has spoken about that quite openly and how the team was pretty much divided into two separate groups. So one with Slatan Ibrahimovic and former Aston Villa defender, Olof Melberg. Uh, and then Jungberg had kind of his own little posse. Uh, Henrik Larsson was apparently on both teams he didn't <laughs> he didn't choose a side um, and there there is of course the famous fight between Melba and Jungberg back in 2002 during the World Cup um, which is one of those moments that will forever be remembered um, yeah, around the same time that Roy Keane and Mick McCarthy were having trouble Melberg and Jungberg having to be pulled apart fighting on the training pitch before the start of the World Cup. Did that have as big an impact as, as Roy Keane and, and on Ireland's campaign? Yeah, I, I don't know if it had an impact on, on the tournament uh, at whole. I actually do think that Jungberg just played uh, the two first games and then he was actually injured. Um, but, I mean, it, maybe it was lucky that Slatan Ibrahimovic hadn't had his big breakthrough yet uh, when this happened. Um, but Slatan do mention Jungberg a lot in his biography um, that was released eight years ago. Um, and throughout the whole chapter, re- he refers to Jungberg not by his name, but as Primadonna, which basically means the diva. If you uh, wanted to really annoy him, he could just call him Freddy throughout. Slatan <laughs> <laughs> uh, was apparently sick of hearing Jungberg talking about how great Arsenal was at everything uh, and thought he came across as a, as a bit of a brat, actually. Um, and I have to say, I think it was... Because as much as they clashed personality-wise, at the same time they resembled one another, um, you know, by being these difficult, strong characters and, and sort of free spirits. They they stood out, I would say. But where Zlatan feels like a fairly obvious extrovert, certainly some of the articles I've read about Jungberg on the Athletic site, one fantastic piece uh, by the triumvirate of Ornstein, Lawrence and McNicholas. There's a suggestion that Freddie Jungberg, more of an introvert, certainly an individual and a slightly different to how we might expect a footballer to be. But the bright red Mohican that I remember and the modelling campaigns that stick out, not necessarily reflective of some big extroverted character. No, and he refers to himself as being shy. Uh, and he actually said that these um, incredible Calvin Klein pictures actually brought, in out, brought him out of his comfort zone in a way. Um, and I should also mention that Jungberg, one, he, he was one of those players that journalists at the time preferred speaking to because he was always very outspoken and gave good straight up answers. Um, and he still does. And other underwear brands are available and quite a lot cheaper as well. Michael, in terms of character, potentially not the the obvious or the most obvious leader and and, and maybe footballing brain wise. Yeah, that's the thing that surprised me most. I mean, if you look at that Invincibles 11, I wouldn't have had Jungberg in the first six or seven names I'd expect to be in charge of Arsenal one day. You could see Omri, Burkamp, Vieira, perhaps Sol Campbell, 
Uh, Jens Lehmann, of course, was involved in the coaching team. Perhaps even at that time, Ashley Cole was such an Arsenal man, you could imagine that. But Jungbo just seemed a little bit distant, a little bit of an individual, maybe not someone who was, you know, captaincy material in the natural kind of leadership way. I mean, there's also talk at the moment that, you know, Mikel Arteta linking him with the job. He's the kind of opposite. He felt like a leader on the pitch, almost a manager on the pitch at the time. Whereas Jungberg, maybe because of his character, maybe because of his position as well, was kind of just flitting around on the outside. So, you know, to see him in uh, in the dugout at Norwich on uh, on Sunday really was quite something. And it, it's not just his character and the position that he played on the pitch, but his post-retirement years... Uh, his spell after finishing playing the game, it didn't scream a burning desire to to get into the dugout as quickly as possible. No, I mean, I remember not really hearing of him for a few years and then he was a pundit on Match of the Day in uh, 2012. Match of the Day 2, I should say. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen a pundit who was less willing to speak about the game. And it really came across that, I mean, he was alongside Mark Lawrenson, who looked really insightful in comparison, but it seemed like it wasn't that he didn't want to analyse the games, but it felt like he hadn't really watched a lot of football. He was asked about a few players that were playing at the time and the only ones he could really speak about were the ones that he'd played with or played against, I should say, four or five years beforehand. So it seemed like one of these guys who had kind of, you know, almost like Emmanuel Petit, who'd kind of stopped playing and was, was kind of sick of the game. But, uh, f- you know, from reading the article you mentioned by David Ornstein and Amy Lawrence uh, and James McNicholas, it almost seems like he got bored of just not having much to do and, and realised that he needed to get back into football. Frida, was it a surprise to you and other Swedish football experts when he decided to take his coaching badges and when that experience led him first back to Halmstad, where he'd started his playing career? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I think that everyone thought that he was going to do I don't know, maybe something in in the entertainment business or uh, um, or so on. Um, in a way, he did because he actually runs a sports bar in his hometown, Halmstad, called, called Freddy's. <laughs> <laughs> um, really winding up everyone that walked past it. <laughs> well, not really, no. But and I do think that he he's involved in some kind of restaurant as well. So I mean, he has these these side projects. Uh, Two different revenue streams, which yeah. is important. Exactly, but but I was definitely surprised, and I think many was. And he didn't spend too long with Hamstadt, Michael. He owes what's happened since then to a few different individuals, one of them Andreas Jonker and the other Per Mertesacker. Talk us through uh, that spell. Yeah, I worked with Jonker first, uh, I think, in charge of Arsenal's under-16s. Then he followed Jonker across, had a very short spell in the in the Bundesliga together and then yeah it was Per Matisaka who of course is uh, in charge of Arsenal's academy now who brought him back over to work with the under 23s and I guess you start to see obviously Matisaka played for Arsenal for a number of years this kind of growing influence of the ex-players at Arsenal and Arsenal have been criticised a lot over the years for not keeping those kind of players around and now you see a lot of them Matisaka, Jungberg, Edu is there of course in charge of uh, well, we'll be involved in, in the process of appointing the next manager. And of course, Steve Bold was the guy who essentially did a job swap with Jungberg, uh, going down to work with the youth team as Jungberg became an assistant. But I think it was quite interesting the way he was, he was clearly an Arsenal man and promoted to be an assistant on Arsenal's insistence rather than Emery's. And it was interesting to read that article that was written a couple of months ago before you know, we knew that Emery was in trouble. And there was a kind of sense that, OK, we're, 
we're blooding him because we think one day he can step up and he can, uh, you know, lead Arsenal as the manager. Yeah, because for all we've spoken about how his character, etc., and the way that he carried himself at the end of his career didn't lead us to think he was an obvious, uh, obvious coaching material. Frida, by all accounts, when he starts working with Arsenal's under twenty three team, a He's not there for a jolly because he's a former player that's got a, a sweet gig. He's working hard and he's a really popular coach, especially with some of the younger players who are now making their way into the first team. Yeah, I think we, we've we spoken a lot about him uh, during these past months, uh, much more than I would expect, actually. Um, of course, it's always fun to have a Swedish assistant coach in the Premier League um, but he I mean he's actually made some headlines and we've been talking about him a lot and I mean both Saka and Joe Willock they, they've been very outspoken about how, how much he helped them so um, as much as it um, surprises me um, I also do think that it shows that I mean he's, he's he's done some good stuff. It feels from reading a few of those pieces like he's very diligent and very interested in the uh, analysis side of the game as well. There's a line about sitting, Yunberg uh, sitting with these young players in the dressing room, just quietly in one corner, going through clips, talking to them one on one about how they can improve and, and ways in which to do that. Michael, that first game against Norwich, the headlines were the return to the starting 11 of Xhaka and Mustafi. What did you pick out as your main takeaways from that game? I mean, I didn't think it was fundamentally different from the way Arsenal played before. It was 4-3-3, which Emery didn't really use that much. Um, but he'd only had really two training sessions with them. So I think expecting any kind of improvement in that time is unreasonable. I think it's been interesting, actually, the way he the way he spoke about the game afterwards. And he was quite specific in terms of we need to get better at defensive transitions and, and that kind of thing. And it was, he just seems like a detail man, which again, maybe is not something you would have expected because he seemed... You know, from what we saw, it seemed like quite a brash, almost like half-interested kind of guy. But he seems like very intense. And, you know, also the way today Frida can speak about it more as, as she was there. But the way he spoke in the press conference talking about, you know, looking at the data and it backing up his assumptions about the way Arsenal played. He, he just seems someone who's very in-depth. Um, and also to go back to, you know, him working with the youngsters, it seems like it's real specific situations he worked on. It's not a kind of mentality thing. It's not necessarily a tactical thing. It's here's a couple of technical points that we want you to improve on. Um, I guess that is very suited to being a, a, you know, developing youngsters and make them ready for the first team. We still have to wait and see, of course, how he formats the side tactically and the kind of overall picture of his side. Frida, tell us about his press conference that you attended today, Tuesday, his first major press conference as Arsenal's interim manager. What were the the key messages that he was keen to get across? Well, despite being 30 minutes late, uh, I actually do think that he he gave an overall good impression. Um, Like Michael said, um, he talked less about spirits uh, more about uh, you know the tactical bits and so on and the things that they really need to improve uh, otherwise they won't win against any opponent uh, as he said um, I mean that was pretty straight on um, which I do think that Arsenal need at this point because Unai Emery actually seemed to be a bit too naive even when, when he spoke about uh, some things uh, you know that uh, 
or problems in the game, really. Um, but yeah, he, he did a good impression. Not too serious, but not too happy either. Um, I mean, the second half against Norwich wasn't good, and he was pretty clear about that. Um, but still backing his players and being being optimistic uh, and so on. So yeah, overall a good and humble impression. Is he talking as if he will be the interim manager of Arsenal or is expecting to be for a lengthy period of time? No, he he actually got a question today whether he expected to still be an assistant coach if someone else steps in. Uh, and he was pretty clear that it's up to the club. It's it's not my decision. I'll do whatever the, this club needs me to do or needs me to be. So um, I don't think he's counting on anything um, but I don't think that he would hesitate if he got the chance to to lead his team. It's interesting, isn't it, Michael? Because we're starting to see a picture emerging of quite an analytical style coach and quite a deep thinker in terms of, of the game itself. Frida saying he's not talking about passion and working hard, which are the buzzwords of many other managers. When you get a former club legend taking over a club, whether it's on an interim basis or a permanent basis, one phrase that is often uh, used by fans of that club as a positive is knowing the club. And I suppose that can work for Jungberg in two ways. He's been a part of Emery's backroom staff, but he's also someone with a great history of the club. When the phrase, he just gets it, is used, do you think there's any benefit to that? Do you think that holds some weight in appointing a manager these days? I think pretty rarely. I mean, I, I do see the benefit of him knowing the youngsters that you know are coming through into Arsenal's first team. I'm slightly less convinced that there's a, a really kind of direct lineage that goes back to his time, which changed in 2007, let's not forget, Arsenal as a player. Of course, Arsenal have played attack-minded football and I think it's fair to say that the style Emery wanted is not in keeping with the way Arsenal play so I think he's almost got an easy win if he wants to encourage more attacking football but in terms of specifics I think I think clubs are getting slightly too carried away with this now you know the I, I think a lot of clubs are still looking for almost a Pep Guardiola figure at Barcelona Barcelona is quite a unique example of a side who really genuinely did have a very obvious way of playing football that went back 20, 30 years and went back during times where actually they were quite unsuccessful. And Guardiola did make sense coming through from the, the youth team. I think Arsenal have a a recent history of playing attack-minded football, but really that is just one manager. I mean, you look at the managers either side, or not directly either side, but you look at George Graham, you look at Unai Emery, they are not attack-minded managers. So what uh, it's, some people, it's really a Wenger thing, isn't it? Arsenal playing attacking football. So what some people may consider to be an Arsenal DNA or an Arsenal blueprint, you're suggesting might be more down to Arsene Wenger? I, I think so. And I think with the DNA, you can get a little bit a little bit carried away. I mean, I was interested to see actually that there was a report this week in one of the newspapers that West Ham had been monitoring the situation to get Jungberg in. I mean, would they have been doing that if Jungberg hadn't played for them for a season? Do they think that Jungberg understands West Ham based upon his year there? I just find it slightly uh, a bizarre situation. And, you know, there's a couple of... Uh, other examples in the Premier League at the moment, obviously Lampard and Solskjaer, ex-club legends going back there, having slightly different experiences at the moment. But it's it's intriguing because a few years, well, 
say when Mourinho first came to England, I thought this would be the the new model of managers. There would be less ex-players and more kind of, you know, almost students had worked their way up. Whereas now we seem to be shifting back towards a system of, you know, real ex-players coming into the clubs where, you know, they're already quite popular. So potentially no blueprint and possibly not a huge amount of time in charge of this team. But Michael, in terms of quick fixes which it's clear this Arsenal side needs. Amy Lawrence notes in her piece on the Athletic site that Arsenal have faced only five shots fewer by December than Manchester City did in the whole of last season. Something else that stood out in the profile of Jungberg on the site was the under-23s captain uh, that he had coached last season described his playing style as more realistic football, which I thought was interesting leaning towards pragmatic. Could that be something that works with this Arsenal squad or is that defence just so far gone from from being able to form any sort of solid defensive unit? Yeah, it was interesting that quote because it hints at someone who maybe does have the uh, the capacity to be a, a first team manager rather than just a youth team manager because you know a lot of youth team managers can be kind of idealistic, I guess. Um, yeah, I think the defence is obviously a big problem. He's talked about it in transition, which I think is interesting. You know, they're the moments that Arsenal really need to get right. And that was obvious with, I think, the first goal. Norwich scored, but there was just so much backing off from the defenders on a, on a counter-attack, really. Um, yeah, it's the defence that needs to be fixed, which is interesting because obviously he was not a defensive player. But again, it, that's not necessarily a, a guide to how you're going to be as a manager. George Graham famously... Uh, was nicknamed the stroller because he was such a languid attacking midfield player and ended up being, you know, a hugely uh, defensive-based disciplinarian. So there's no reason why Jungberg can't fix that side of thing. Maybe he could give his old friend Olaf Melberg a call and, and see if he could <laughs> maybe come and offer some, some freelance defensive coaching just for the next few weeks. Frida, is there any way in which this current situation with Arsenal and Freddie Jungberg could be reminiscent of a similar situation at Manchester United with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? I wouldn't be surprised um, if it did. Um, he would probably have to win at least the five upcoming games um, for that to happen. And uh, I don't think he will. Uh, and it, it it has nothing to do with him, really. Uh, rather, how, you know, the quality of the squad, uh, which isn't very good at the moment. Um but with that being said, I do think that he has a, a bright future uh, when it comes to being a, a manager and coach. Um, and no, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see him in another club uh, pretty soon, uh, probably here in, in, in England. I suppose it depends how the next few weeks go. It seems unlikely that an interim manager could damage their reputation significantly, but it feels like both in the English game, but also over in Sweden, the last year or two of Jungberg's coaching development have seen quite a large shift in how people perceive him and perceive his future. Yeah, and, and I have to say, I, I think um, Frank Lampard um, has been very influential when it comes to seeing ex-players as managers, because obviously Sulcha, he, he, he struggles a bit, um, and he has he had you know this amazing spell in the beginning, which earned him uh, a contract. Um, I don't think he would have been there if they hadn't 
done so well in the beginning. Um, but Frank Lampard is another example of someone who has actually taken Chelsea, who no one believed in really, and actually made them better uh, week after week and really improved the whole time. So, um, yeah, do you think that Frederick and uh, Frank Lampard are probably more alike than Solskjaer and uh, Jungberg. Um, I, so I think it's those two we should compare instead. Interesting. Michael, you're significantly more intrigued by Freddie Jungberg than you might have been a year ago or even six months ago. Yeah, I'm still just surprised to see him in this position. But um, I, I mean, I don't think he will stick around as the permanent manager. But it's just been nice... Uh, I think there is a quality in bringing back a, a former player when the club is in a, you know, a pretty sorry state. I think that was the case after Mourinho with Solskjaer coming in, and you know Arsenal fans were really quite united uh, in terms of wanting Emery out. So it's going to be for a short term period, I think. But uh, yeah, as as we as we say, I think that this could be the kind of first we see of a manager who uh, does go on to get a decent permanent job elsewhere in England. Plenty of insight from my guests into Freddie Jungberg, both. His character, his playing career, what's happened since and what might potentially happen in the future. A very interesting character. Thank you so much, Frida Fagerlund from Afton Bladet for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I mean, it's a busy spell for you. The interest from Sweden must be higher than it's ever been. Yeah, I finally have something to do over here. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And Michael Cox of The Athletic, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ali. We'll see you again next week as well. Ornstein and Chapman is another of The Athletic's podcasts. There are also a number of club-specific offerings, all available for free on every podcast platform you could possibly think of. If you want to hear about the sacking of Unai Emery and Arsenal's plan going forward, if there is one, Ornstein and Chapman really is the place to be. Inside info galore, as you would expect. If you want to subscribe to The Athletic site, where you can read all about this stuff and so, so much more. You can sign up today using the offer code UKPOD. That's all one word and it's all caps, UKPOD. You'll get 40% off. We would implore you to check out The Athletic today. So much good stuff on there. And from us, well, we'll be back again next week with a new fresh topic from the Zonal Marking Podcast.